This episode of Going Forward is brought to you by Optimizer, an award-winning PPC management tool used by advertisers worldwide. Save time and boost the performance of your PPC campaigns on Facebook, Amazon, and Google, or Microsoft. Get a 14-day free trial at optimizer.com slash go slash VIP. You're listening to The AdCast with your host, Eric Elliott. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Eric with The AdCast, and I got an awesome guest today, and he has an author, he's an advertiser, and he even knows Spike Lee. And We're going to talk about this amazing book that he has written, but first, I want to give you a word from our sponsor, our new sponsor, the folks over at Optimizer, uh, Fred and his team. I want to tell you guys, we love you. We thank you so much for being a sponsor of the show, and if any of you guys are marketing agencies or serious professionals, and you have uh, a PPC campaign, you cannot operate a PPC campaign manually on your own. The best thing to do is get a system that's going to work for you and have your back. And I want to thank our folks at Optimizer for being sponsors of the show. And in this episode, we'll let you know it's brought to you by Optimizer. They are an award-winning PPC management tool used by advertisers worldwide to save them time and boost the performance of ad campaigns on Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook and uh, learn more. You can go to optimizer.com slash go slash VIP. I'll put that in the show notes. And if you go there, you get actually a 14 day free trial from us and tell them it's on Eric. All right. Awesome. Now let's going to get to the show. I want to talk to my man today, Mr. Mark Robinson. Mark, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing fabulous. How about yourself, Eric? Man, I'm good. I am really good. And I'm glad to have you in the show. I feel like I'm on the show with a giant today. I know you're going to be a little modest, but uh, you got a lot of things going on. And Mark, for those people who don't know exactly who you are or what you do, uh, would you be so kind as to tell them uh, who you are? Well, um, I am a veteran of the advertising agency business. I've been in the business. Uh, this is my 45th year. Oh, congratulations. Um, and uh, uh, there's probably a whole crowd of people waiting for me to get out of the business, but uh, <laughs> still here, still standing. Yep. Um, uh, worked for a number of different uh, New York agencies over the course of the years. Um, started out my career on the mainstream general market advertising side of the business. Mm -hmm. um, and about halfway through, transitioned to multicultural marketing. Um, I... Uh, uh, went to work at Uniworld, which back in the 90s was the largest African-American and minority-owned agency in the country. Mm. Um, and uh, since then have worked for um, pretty much a top-shelf selection of other um, multicultural uh, ad agencies, including uh, working with Spike and co-founding Spike DDB. For those folks who don't know uh, who Spike is, and you, you hear Mark just saying, Spike. We're talking about the one and only Spike Lee. You know, uh, Mark, only you can really, you only you are qualified to really say Spike. I can't do that. All right. <laughs> so now well, you you are, you're an ad vet. And, you know, immediately when people hear an ad veteran in the New York area, they're thinking mad men, those kind of people. But interesting uh, enough, and I want to I want to definitely get around all this stuff uh, about the past and everything and what led up to it. But you have a really interesting book. Let's let's talk about that book, man. Uh, tell me about that book, and and why did you write it? 
Um, well, th the book has an interesting origin story because I was actually working on another book um, at the time. And while I was writing that other book, a, a handful of stories um, started to emerge in my head that I wrote down. And it was like this voice in my head that was insistent on you, you got to capture this story. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, um, it was insistent on being told in that way. So I took aside some time, wrote those stories down. They ended up ultimately being chapters in mm. the book that I have now, um, which is called Black on Madison Avenue. Yeah. Um, and um, I shared those initial chapters with um, uh, Judan Pollack, who's the executive editor at Advertising Age. Mm -hmm. And she said, these sound like they're from a book. And I said, well, not yet. She says, well, then go write the damn thing. So you didn't you didn't know you were writing a book. You were just kind of journaling it almost. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is the um, best way to do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, what I was writing was my own personal story of mm -hmm. uh, my career uh, as a, a black professional in the advertising agency business. But as I kept on writing, what emerged was really a lot more than just my personal story. Mm -hmm. um, and it became more about the story of all black professionals in the ad agency business and, you know, how we have struggled to find our place and to find a welcome place in the business and what we have to do to to thrive and survive in that business. Because um, what most people really don't know is that the advertising agency business is one of the most undiverse uh, white collar professions in America. I, I agree with you 100%. You know, in the back of me, you, you'll see the signs that say, be great. And for those of you who may be listening just to the audio only, I invite you to go to YouTube. But behind me, you see this the sign that says, be great. And, and I, I agree with everything that you said. And, and when we were looking through our guests and you came through, uh, one of the things that I told the producer was, I have to talk to him. I have to get his point of view. And the reason being is because like, I remember I had this, um, uh, she was a station president one time. She's an African-American woman, one of the only ones who worked for, you know, a major CBS affiliate here in the South. And, uh, and I said to her, I said, I think some of these people are, are racist. And she said, it's not that you're racist. She said, you're just different. She said, you're smart and you're young. And some people don't know how to, they don't know how to take that. And you're just different from who they are used to, is what yep. she said. And, and I, there's a, there's a line here that I, I wanted to come to. And it said, through the pages of Black on Madison Avenue, Mark tells a story of being the only one maintaining one's core moral compass, rising up the ranks and then moving on to one's own shop while also giving the reader an industry history coupled with black history, civil rights. And, and Mark, I mean, that, that paragraph says a lot, man, that sells, a, that says a lot. So what, what are some of the things that, that you saw, like you said, we are in that industry, in that white collar industry, we are the minority what are some of the things that you saw coming up? I mean, were your ideas appreciated? I, I want to hear all about that. Well, in the book, one of the stories that I tell is my very first job interview, mm -hmm. trying to get a job in the ad business. And um, 
I met with the um, director of human resources at a particular agency, mm -hmm. um, and I was able to get that interview through um, an alumni contact at my college. So, um, you know, right from the very beginning, it's all about who you know. Yeah. What connections can you network? What wow. relationships can you leverage mm -hmm. in order to get into the business? And if you don't have those connections, you are really not playing on a level playing field. Wow. Um, but I went into this interview and the woman who was the director of HR looked over my resume, acknowledged the fact that the only reason I was in the room with her was because the vice president had set up the interview. And so she acknowledged that I had leveraged a, a, a relationship. She, she, she acknowledged that in the interview. In the interview. Wow. And she said, you're a very bright young man, so I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, you're looking for a job in account management. And account management in the ad agency business is essentially the face of the agency and the face of the agency's relationship with the client. Yes. Um, and so you're very high profile and you're the person who um, really holds the, the the future of the relationship and the money in your hands. Yeah, you're, you are a gateway. Absolutely. Um, and she said, we don't hire Negroes in account management. And she gave a moment for that to sink in. And then she said, you know, other agencies may not tell you the truth. I'm telling you the truth, mm. you know, but you won't get a job in account management. And so I kind of stood there and tried to process that um, and said, well, thank you. Um, but I'm just going to keep on interviewing until I do. Right. So clearly there isn't a, you know, any reason for me to stick around here. How did it make you feel? More than anything else, it made me feel confused. It was like, this is a, this is a, a new experience. And it was a new experience, not because somebody had been racist to my face. It was a new experience because of my response to it, which was I had turned down an opportunity to do something in a different department because she said, I'm happy to interview you for media or, um, you know, traffic or whatever, just not client facing. but just not client facing. Mm. And, and I said, no, thank you. Um, mm. And, you know, the idea of anybody in my family turning down a job offer at a respectable um, white collar Madison Avenue ad agency was just insane. Yeah. You know, um, th that I thought I'm better than this. So I, I had to process that for myself. And that really helped me tremendously. And it opened a door to my own ambitions and allowed me to see, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to let somebody else define how high the sky is. Mm. You know, Mark, man, that's a gut punch, man. It, it, it's a gut punch because it's like, you know, here you are. You're not going to uh, apply or, you know, put yourself in front of a job or lay yourself down on the line for a job that you don't think that you are qualified for. But then here's someone just, you know, not even giving you that opportunity or hearing you out and just saying, no, not at all. Yeah. But what was it? What was it? I know you said, you know, everyone thought you were crazy if you didn't take this job on Madison Avenue, prestigious, you know, company and all. 
But what made you not settle? Because a, a lot of times I've seen people just say like, you know what? I'll go to the mail room and I'll work my way up. But what made you not settle? I was very fortunate um, in both the, the college that I attended and the high school that I attended before that mm -hmm. um, were, um, you know, even then and, and through most of my life, mm -hmm. I have been um, a, a diverse presence in a very undiverse environment. Okay. And, um, the high school that I attended was a um, was an exclusive private school in New York called the Dalton School. Mm -hmm. um, and I was one of the very first young black men to attend Dalton in the late 1960s. Um, and having that unique and special opportunity to go there, and then after high school going to Amherst College, uh, and basically, you know, always being among the kind of the 2%, the um, it gave me a different perspective on the world yeah. and, and, and allowed me to think like those other folks were thinking, which was, you know, my ambitions are written in my handwriting, mm. somebody else's. You know, um, in 2007, uh, I started our agency in 2010. But in 2007, this is, this is you know, you're, man, you're, you're giving me all these flashbacks. I was the only African-American male that sold television or an account executive in the Charleston, South Carolina market. The only one. Yep. There was an NBC affiliate. There was a CBS affiliate that I worked at. There was an ABC affiliate and then Fox. I was the only African-American at that time that was selling broadcast television and you're talking you're talking years from when you were going through what you were going through but the one thing that i said that i had to do and i had to figure out was okay i'm just going to be better yeah so and it was it was a matter of okay i can't be good i just got to be great so yes. behind me that's why i said like i have to be great and and like you said you were you brought diversity into a room but I feel like, uh, you know, I was like, you know, I learned this from my, my friend Arnie. And it was like, Eric, you use all those things that negative people say negatively about you. And then you turn them into a positive. The way for me to do that was if I'm the only one selling television in the market, then you're going to remember me if I came into your place. Yep. And then I felt like I could talk to two markets. Right. Uh, and I learned this from even when I sold radio, I could talk to the urban market. And I could talk to the general market because I understood not just the color, but I understood the culture yes. of who I was talking to. Do you ever, did you ever feel like you added much more than they were allowing you to give? Oh, absolutely. Because um, one of the important skill sets in advertising and particularly in account management, because you were also the strategist. Mm -hmm. on the business. Mm -hmm. It is your responsibility to understand what motivates that target consumer. Mm -hmm. And as a black man, not only do I understand myself and my own community and my own people, mm -hmm. but I, un I, I understand mainstream society from a very different perspective. I understand yes. it from the perspective of somebody who, in order to survive, 
I have to um, study it and understand it from a scientific point of view just to 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 exist and and prosper in it and so i i bring a, a, a more scientific a, a more intentional focus than the typical person would mark i, I think you and i are brothers <laughs> I, I i think we're brothers from another mother no kidding man because it's like uh, you, you you put it better than I could, but truthfully, it's like, I, I always tell people like one of the things that I learned the most was in sociology when I was in school. But even when I go out to restaurants now, it's like, I study people. Yes. I study people. I, I, I look at what they respond to. And, and then, you know, sometimes that those are the best, uh, that's the best research that you can get that other people just can't get, yep. you know? Um, like, for example, um, we serve a lot of personal injury lawyers. A lot of their clientele is low income or African-American. And meanwhile, the lawyer is a multimillionaire. He thinks he knows who his target audience is. He, sure. markets, he markets a certain way, but he doesn't get the strategy that goes behind it because he's a talent piece. Yeah. They don't understand the color, nor do they understand the culture. They're just advertising. <laughs> you get you get what i'm saying oh yeah uh, you know so i mean tell me about a time where you used that scientific knowledge that you have and you brought that into a room and you made a huge difference i mean tell me about that because that lady whoever told you a long time ago she can hire you she's got to be real she had to have been real pissed off later to be able to see you right now so um gosh let me think of a a, a good example um you know, I think working on the Coors Light, mm -hmm. um, uh, we developed a campaign called the Coors Light Show. Mm. And the Coors Light Show was not something you could put your finger on and say, oh, that's what that is. Mm. It was many different things. And, and what made it successful was its ability to morph and change um, almost instantaneously. But the essence of the idea was that the Coors Light Show mimicked a relationship between close friends. And what makes that person your close friend is, you know, if you hang out with them, you're going to have a good time. And they're going to introduce you to things you didn't know about. And you go, oh, if I hadn't hung out with Mark, I mm. never would have known about X, Y, Z. Wow. And so we wanted to create events and activities and things so that people hung out with Coors Light and had a good time and came to learn about things that they wouldn't have learned about otherwise. So yeah. we would throw parties and, and, and at, at various venues all across the country, and we would bring up-and-coming artists that people weren't familiar with mm -hmm. and pair them with a big name, big label artist that would be the draw that got them in the room. And they'd go, hey, I got to see so-and-so who's hot right now. And you know who was performing with them? This guy that nobody's ever heard of before. Um, and and mm -hmm. now I know something that I can brag about and I'll be the guy that knows something that my other friends don't know about. Yeah. 
and that that creates a position of power that I love, you know, and you know, among the up and coming artists that we featured that nobody had ever heard of before were Usher, CeeLo, wow. you know, um, and, and we would pair them with people like uh, Notorious B.I.G. You know, uh, Mark, you're my brother. <laughs> I, I already told you that you, you, you're my brother. I'm not kidding, man. Uh, when I was in radio, the same thing, like all these like artists who are coming up now and you see like they're big i was like man i remember them coming through the station on promo you know that's 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 just amazing now let me ask you this though do you feel like because you've worked on other brands as well and you even launch your own brand apparel company and all that do you feel like some of the big brands uh would respect your advice now more than ever or 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 is there an opportunity for them to say like, man, we missed the boat because we weren't listening and paying attention. I mean, what is, what is that like now? Cause you can look in front of those big brands and it's almost like I told you so. <laughs> right. Yeah. With a few, with a few, um, you know, there, there are a, a small number of brands that, um, you know, they've got my email and my phone mm -hmm. number. Uh, and I, I do, uh, occasionally um, have conversations with them or, you know, get engaged on a consulting basis. Mm -hmm. um, ironically, some of my more reliable clients are not the flashy brands. They're the um, extremely gray corporate brands Yeah, um, who are a lot more focused on help me understand the, the science of what makes my consumer tick. Right. Wow. Gosh, man. It, but do you feel there's a big difference now? Because we've had events now that have happened in our recent history that I think that have made big brands, agencies, and everyone pay more attention now. Yeah. Um, things are getting better. Um, and I think that... Uh, the 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 big brands are trying more and mm -hmm. trying harder mm -hmm. but often um they are drawn to that shiny thing that they see yeah. without really understanding what i need is somebody who knows how to help me as opposed to what is that hot celebrity of the moment mm. who can you know who can grab attention for me for the moment, but it's very ephemeral. It's very temporary. And if you don't understand the mechanics behind how that attention is getting drawn, um, you know, it's, it's the difference between give a man a fish and teach him how to fish. There you go. What, what do you, what do you want people to feel when they read your book? Because, you know, and, and the reason I ask that is because it's not like you just sat down and just, you know, over the summer and just said, I'm going to write a book. You know, it was kind of collectively done. And someone said, this sounds like a book and you put it together. What do you, what do you want them to feel now that it's done? Um, I want them to see me because I think that and when I say me, I, I actually mean it in in the in the larger plural me of you and me and all of us. Mm. I want people to see us because we are more often than not invisible. 
um, we are either in completely invisible or what they see is their definition of me rather than me. Yeah. And the book is an attempt to say, this is, this is the reality behind the facade that you've placed in front of me. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel, Mark, uh, that, that currently that it's, it's helped? You know, that it's helped uh, kind of tell your story a little more because it's easier for us to write things down than really just sit on the phone or have that conversation. Do you feel like you you truly got everything out or did you hold back? Oh, the, did you I, hold back at all? Or did you just like let the book have it? Oh, uh, there's a lot that's held back. There is there's a whole lot that's held back. Um, some of it is simply because, um, you know, you can't write the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm-hmm. And some of it's because. I happen to have the benefit of some very, very smart lawyers who say, no, no, you can't put that in there. No. Right. right. <laughs> no, I mean, but it's still, I mean, a good reel. You want people to feel a certain way. You want them to be able to see you. But what is it that you want them to see? And you want them to see you and understand you and know that you are more than what they've heard about. But what do you want them to see? Um, I want them to see that difference equals value Mm. because for a lot of people, particularly in this business, but people in general, um, they see difference equals darkness difference equals um, an unknown that creates fear because if it's different, it's something I don't know and I don't understand. And if I don't understand it, it makes me uncomfortable and I'm afraid of it. So I want people to see that difference equals value. In all my years of hearing some really good stuff, that is, that is, I'm quoting you on that. And I, and I, I don't be surprised if I steal it from you, <laughs> Mark, but uh, go deeper into that part. The difference, you know, the difference, uh, the difference versus people thinking, you know, it equals something else. What they don't understand doesn't equal value. I get that part because then that is kind of prejudging almost, yeah. you know? So, yeah. I mean, talk to me about the difference equals value and tell me how you being so different and being the differentiator at the time, how you brought value. Okay. Well, first I have to say in terms of stealing quotes, my staff maintains a journal mm-hmm. and the name of the journal is shit. Mark says, <laughs> Oh, I like that, Mark. (laughs) That's the next. They're they're constantly writing down things. I don't know if that is a good thing or a bad thing. My people send it to me on Slack, and they send it to me on Slack. So, (laughs) to the audience, the first thing is you're hearing the next book. It's going to be called "Shit Mark Says." Okay. (laughs) So, so Mark, I mean, I mean, tell me about it. Go into that. How you know being different, you know brings about value and how you you being different brought in value to people and companies um i i think that um there are values that i have mm-hmm. um you know my background i i um i come from a west indian family mm-hmm. and um you know one of the first things that 
people begin to appreciate or white people begin to appreciate as they get to know me is that, well, not all black people are the same. Mm. There are many different subsets and strata of culture um, and um, points of view within the black community that a, a West Indian is going to be different culturally than somebody who grew up in the South or somebody from Detroit or somebody from LA or somebody from New York, right. um, you know, that, you know, there isn't a thing called black people. And the more that they begin to appreciate, well, you know, Hey, you know what? Black people are as diverse as people. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about that before. You know, that there can be more than one kind of black person. You know, I, I have this saying and this let's call this shit that Eric says. OK. <laughs> and I and I say that people behave differently in different platforms. And and I, it started out by having this conversation saying, you know, someone's not going to talk on LinkedIn the same way they talk on Facebook. Same person. You yeah. know, when when Mark is when Mark Robinson is hanging out with his friends, he's going to have a friendly relationship. Your guards are down. And then when Mark is talking to me or he's in a corporate boardroom, he's still the same Mark, but he's in a different platform. So yeah. people behave differently. But then that same thing applies to everyone. You know, it applies to everyone. And I think uh, one of the things that is telling me, and I can't wait to really get my hands on your book and read through it, is that people need to open their eyes, you know? So it, it must have, I can't imagine what it is, what it has taken you all these years to go through things and then say, I want to write this book and here's why. What is the feeling you had when you put these notes together and you wrote the book? Were you upset? Were you happy? Or were you just like, I need to inform and educate people? What was the feeling Mark had? Um, not upset. Um, and not, I need to inform and educate people. Mm -hmm. I guess happy is the closest thing. It's hmm. like, you know, when you when you get to tell your truth, yeah, it is. Um, it's like hearing yourself sing, and know that you don't suck at it, mm. or looking in the mirror and seeing yourself dance and go, actually, that's not embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's 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 a pride, there's a satisfaction. I'm given the opportunity to talk about my truth and it feels good doing that. Like you got an elephant off your chest. Yeah, exactly. Why is that? I mean, I'm sorry I'm asking, but why is that? Um, Cause you can go your whole life without having anybody actually interested in what your truth is. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. um, depending upon what circles you travel in, you know, people just don't care enough about learning about you. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us have the need to tell our own truth. Hey, it's Eric here from VIP Marketing, and I want to ask you digital marketers something. Are you frustrated with your current PPC marketing campaigns? Well, I want to tell you about a tool that we use here at our agency. It's called Optimizer. You have the ability to get your reports up to date and make sure that you get alerts on them. You can even work into workflows as well. 
So if you're frustrated with your campaigns right now and the reporting systems that you use, I want to give you a 14-day free trial of Optimizer. Go to optimizer.com slash go slash VIP. All right, we are back on the AdCast. I'm sitting here talking with my buddy, my brother from another mother. We've already established that during the show, uh, Mr. Mark Robinson. And uh, while we're back from this, I want to give a shout out to our folks at Optimizer. Um, and these guys are just awesome. You know, if you never, if you ever been frustrated with just tedious software and just things that are just time consuming and what your current situation, just not allowing you to manage everything that comes out with running online ads, I want you to try out Optimizer. I'm going to give you a 14 day free trial on us. Go to optimizer.com slash go slash VIP. And I will promise you that you will be amazed. And this is an award-winning PPC management tool used by advertisers worldwide. So now I want to get back to the show with our friend, Mr. Mark Robinson, Mark, um, in the book, um, you know, how do people say like, you like all of the things that you work on are you, or like in my case, I have all these employees or I have children and you're not supposed to have a favorite child. What is your favorite chapter in your book and why? That really is a tough call because um, there's probably about five different chapters that I, <laughs> that I really, did, really like. But um, I, if I had to pick one, it would be, um, uh, let me be sure I have the, have it right. Yep. Hairbrushing and Oprah's favorite things. Let's go. Tell me why. <laughs> I, I want to hear this. Okay. Um, this is a chapter about um, my experience working with the uh, American Girl doll collection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, the relationship started uh, uh, when I was doing some consulting work and I did consulting for um, the company. And okay. the American Girl doll back then, it's now owned by Mattel. Mm -hmm. They sold out. But back then in the 90s, um, it was owned by this small company called Pleasant Company. Mm -hmm. And they um, tried to recruit me to come be the marketing director there. Um, and uh, I really liked the company a lot, but wasn't really prepared to move to Wisconsin um, okay. to take the job. So I did consulting work with them. Yeah. And um, they asked me to consult and advise. They were launching their very first African-American doll, which is Addie. Um, and for all of the moms out there know who Addie is, if they oh, have yeah. Even I know who the hell Addie is. <laughs> okay. Um, and... Um, you know, I worked with this all-star team of people, including uh, Lonnie Bunch from the National African American Museum, uh, mm -hmm. consulted and advised on this. On the, um, they 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 went all out to do the proper research to create an authentic doll and doll character. Um, and one of the things that um, was part of the design and development process that. I'm most proud of was Addie's hair mm. because I said, Addie has to have hair that is brushable. That one of the things that is um, at the heart of the relationship with, between mothers and daughters 
Oh yeah. Is, is little girls getting their hairs hair brushed by their moms. That is a bonding experience between the two. And those little girls want to replicate that experience with their dolls. Yeah. You know, but particularly back then, and this is the early 90s. Right. There were very, very few black dolls, period. And the ones that were out there did not have brushable hair. Mm -hmm. And so little black girls, if they wanted to brush their doll's hair, had to brush a white doll's hair. Now, that's okay, but it's less than ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, there are all kinds of issues of representation and being able to reinforce self-image and mm -hmm. self-pride. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the points that I made to the team was that Addie had to have brushable hair. Now, how did they take that? The girl had to have that experience. You know, only from only from experience and strategy could someone make that kind of argument when creating a product. By saying to a team, not just offering opinion, saying she has to have a different kind of hair, a brushable hair, but the fact that you said there's a connection between an African American child and their mother with doing their hair, that's how the moments are made. It's almost like an old saying. It's like, you know, you don't make friends at the meeting, you make friends in between the meetings. And that is almost like a, that's part of that relationship where mom's guard is usually let down and daughter's guard is usually let down and they bond. And then yeah. something the daughter will always come to mom to do unless there's no mom around. And then dad learns how to do a ponytail right, or pigtails. But I mean, that's the, that's the strategy part in the experience that you just, that's just different. Yep. Your counterparts couldn't have done that. Well, I, I don't want to presume, but that was one of my contributions to the development process. And then as we launched Addy, um, one of the things that we built into the marketing plan was there have to be experiences. Um, well, you know, it's impossible to explain the full story of who Addy is and what Addy is in a 30 second commercial. Yeah. So you have to reach beyond that. You have to have, um, you know, in-person experiences. Mm -hmm. And so we set up a whole bunch of different in-person experiences, including ice cream socials and reading sessions um, in local community libraries and so forth. Oh. And we set up this grand experience at the National Black Family Reunion in Washington, D.C. that gets about 25,000 people attending on the, on the National Mall in D.C. Mm. And we set up these huge tents and inside the tent, we would have a little um, comfortable chair, a, a child's chair, and a little side table. And we had a dozen of those inside the tent. And little girls could line up, come inside, sit in the chair, and brush Addie's hair. And wow. we, we, had, we had a line going for hundreds of people hundreds of little girls waiting to come in and do that experience. They would wait for an hour or two for their chance to spend 15, 20 minutes in the tent with a doll. What era was this? What this was 1993. Um, and uh, it, after the reunion, um, we were flooded with phone calls because back then this is pre-internet. Yeah. So we were taking orders through an 800 number and the lines were flooded with orders. Um, 
we then, the next step in the marketing plan was, you know, each year when the Oprah Winfrey show was on, Oprah would have Oprah's favorite things mm -hmm. in November, which yeah. were all the things that she thought were great that people would buy for Christmas. So the show was about a month or about six weeks before Christmas. And we managed to get Addie onto the show. And um, Oprah went around to all the different um, items that were on the set that day. Yeah. It's a, you know, uh, somebody explained what each thing was. And when they came to Addie, mm -hmm. it was as though someone had hypnotized Oprah. She just stopped, took the doll, and sat down with it. And wow. she said, we'll be back in a minute. And broke and went to commercial. Wow. And when she came back, she said, this is the only thing I'm giving for Christmas this year. All my friends are getting an Addy. You know, and, and that really touches home for her, especially where she came from, yeah. how she came up. You know, and to be able to see that, um, that's huge for her. Yeah. And and Mark, so you've worked in these different places, these different corporations. Now, le even leading up to that point to 1993, when you had the doll, had Addie on Oprah's show, are you, tell me, what are you learning as you go on? And what are your experiences like as you go on um, as, as Mark, the human being, Mark, the marketing professional? What's your experiences like? Are you gaining more knowledge as you go on there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I had this wonderful mentor who passed away this past year, um, a terrific man named Namon Lewis. Mm. And Namon used to say to me, he said, brother, this ain't a hobby. This is what I do to earn a living. And what he meant by that was, I take this very, very seriously. Mm. I work hard at this, you know, and working hard at this meant, um, you know, you have to read everything you can, books, magazines, whatever. You have to see all the films. You have to watch the whatever programs come on TV. You have to absorb it like drinking from a fire hose, you know, because that's your job. Is to is to know all this stuff. Yeah, man, Mark. I said, I told you, I told you, we were brothers. You, you didn't, you didn't, you, you thought I was kidding, but we are. What, what is something? I got a couple of questions for you that just burning in my head. What is something that you want people to know about Mark Robinson? Um. I think that I'm a good storyteller that I, that, um, and, and that, that comes from paying attention to the world around me wow. that, that I, that I, I try very hard to pay attention. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and, and that is one of the mantras like be great that I tell my folks, I'm constantly saying, pay attention. Mm. You know, because it's all happening right in front of you. But so many people just aren't looking. 
Man, that's going to be a soundbite right there. Now, let's just say, you know, Mark, what year was that when that was in the early 70s when you got turned down by that one company on Madison Ave? That was uh, 78. Okay. After so I seven, graduated college. 78. Mark, Mark Robinson at 1978. What would you tell, what would Mark today say to Mark back then? Um, I want you to think about this one now. Because, you know, there's a lot of wisdom. There are a lot of strategies that have been implemented. A lot of people that you've met. What would you say, given the experience, the things that you've worked on today, what would you say to yourself back in 1978? I think the probably the most useful advice I could have given myself is don't be afraid of the unknown. Uh, um, there, there isn't any unknown that I've encountered in the last 45 years that mm. was, that was of any danger to me. Every unknown was a learning experience. Mm. Now, what does Mark 2023 right now in this moment, what would you say to people? You have got an audience with your books. You're going to have an audience with your social. You have an audience with your emails. You have an audience in us. What do you want to say to people as we part? Um, I think why I'm in, I'm tempted to say, pursue your dream, but that's, that's actually, I think much too easy. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, that I tell my own kids who are now, Mm -hmm. all grown mm -hmm. um is the old expression of find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life is the worst career advice anyone could ever give you and i really believe that i said never believe you'll never work a day in your life i said even the thing that you love with all your heart if you're not working hard at it if you're not willing to get through the really crappy days to get to the great days, mm -hmm. you're not going to make it. So don't believe in never work a day in your life. Believe in you have the power to overcome whatever the worst days in your life are to get to those great days. But there are going to be crappy days. Embrace the suck. Yes, exactly. Man. Mark, I, I enjoyed talking to you and I want to make sure I get the producer to set up another round because I want to hear more about Spike Lee. I want to hear about the clothing brand you started. There's you've got too much history bottled up in there for us to cover even in 30 minutes or even an hour, man. So I want to definitely do that and uh, have you back on and, you know, we can record it at some other time and just make sure that people can hear this message, you know, I just think there's a lot that a lot of young professionals, regardless of what side they're on, because it, it doesn't always have to be black. 
you know, yeah. uh, there are some young Mexican Americans right now who probably need to hear what you have to say or or any other nationality. And I think you have a lot of value and a lot of wisdom. So, Mark, how do people find you? How do they buy your book? How, do, right. they, how do they look out for you? Give me give me the details. Well, I, I, I wish I had chosen to sit down in front of a bookshelf so that uh, people could see my book. But I'm going to be, you know, bold and crass enough to hold it up here for just a moment so that yeah. people can see the book. It's called Black on Madison Avenue. Um, you can go to blackonmadisonavenue.com uh, and find out all about the book. It uh, goes on sale July 1. So mm. um, one month from today. Uh, anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, any local stores should be available. Uh, and if they don't have it there, they'll order it. Um, and you can go to MarkSRobinson.com to find out all about me. Awesome. How about Instagram? You got any Instagram or Facebook? Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Not on Twitter. Okay. Uh, that's personal choice, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm going to try and get a signed copy of that book, Mark. Absolutely. All right, man. I, I just want to thank you, man. I think you're a pleasure to, to talk with. You know, none of us, whenever we begin these conversations, we don't know what to expect from one another. We don't know what questions are going to come up. And that's why I like to be able to have that kind of conversation. And I, and I find your story so intriguing. Everything that I've read, you know, about you, it's just like, I really want to talk to him more and more and more and more. And I know when we are, when we depart, I probably have 100 or 150 more questions but I hope we can stay in touch for that. Okay. Absolutely. This has been a pleasure for me. And, you know, like I said, I always like talking about me. <laughs> I hear you, man. So I want to definitely thank you again, you know, to anyone who's listening, you guys gave us your most valuable asset. That's your time. Uh, that's one thing that money cannot buy is time. So thank you for allowing uh, Mark and I to come into your airwaves. And if this podcast has actually been a blessing to you and giving you some value, Please make sure that you give us a great rating and also share it out with those uh, friends of yours. And you can listen to this anywhere that you consume your favorite podcast. Thanks again to Mark being our awesome guest. And also thank to our show sponsors, Optimizer PPC Management Tools. If you like saving time or you want to get more conversions, sign up for a free trial today. Optimizer.com slash go slash VIP. This has been the AdCast. Thank you, Mark, so much. Thank you. I want to thank you all for giving us your most valuable asset, your time. And also a huge thank you to our sponsors over at Optimizer. For all of you who are running PPC campaigns and you want to see how to do it better and get better results and actually boost the performance of your campaigns and save time, get a free trial at optimizer.com slash go slash VIP.